0: Welcome back, Steve here, and today I'm talking with Ed Hajim, the son of a Syrian immigrant. He is a seasoned Wall Street executive with more than 50 years of investment experience, but his life didn't start out on that path. A matter of fact, he struggled to survive. Ed is the author of his memoir, On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. It's inspiring. It's powerful. You've got so much you're going to learn from Ed. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool. Could you go to my website stevenmaletto dot com and maybe rate and review the podcast? Could you, could you, you know, leave us? Leave me a five-star review and uh, maybe uh, some nice words of wisdom. Could you do that for me? There's there's a little microphone there that you can click on and leave a message for me. You can actually reach out um, using the contact page. You can look at all my podcast previous episodes that are there. You can also look at my blog articles as well as uh, look at other stuff that, uh, that I have there, like a free audio class on classroom management. Well, it'd be cool if you did that. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show with lots of groovy guests, and they share what they know. So crank it up to ten and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steemalento, teaching, learning,
1: leading K twelve, teaching, learning, leading K twelve,
0: teaching, learning, leading K twelve, ah ah, with Dr. Steemalento. Ed Hajim, the son of a Syrian immigrant, is a seasoned Wall Street executive with more than 50 years of investment experience. He has held senior management positions with the Capital Group, EF Hutton, and Lehman Brothers before becoming chairman and CEO of Furman Cells. Hey Jim has been the co-chairman of ING Bearings, Americus Region, uh, chairman and CEO of ING Eltis Group, and ING Furman Cells Asset Management. He is now chairman of High Vista, a Boston-based money management company. In 2008, after 20 years as a trustee of the University of Rochester, Hagem began an eight-year tenure as chairman of the university's board. Upon assuming that office, he gave the school $30 million, the largest single donation in its history, to support scholarships and endow the Edmund A. Hagem School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Through the Hagem Family Foundation, he has made generous donations to organizations that promote education, health care, arts, culture, and conservation. In 2015, he received the Horatio Alger Award, given to Americans who exemplify the values of initiative, leadership, and commitment to excellence, and who have succeeded despite personal adversities. Ed, thanks so much for joining me today. Great to have you on the show, and say hi to everyone. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I appreciate your time and energy in reading the book. Well, I'm glad to be here. Your book is awesome, and it's amazing um, where you started and what you what you achieved in, um, throughout uh, your years and, and just some note, the book is f- the format, the way it feels, the way it looks, the, the amount of pictures you have throughout it. Um, and it's, and it also is just, it's engaging and, uh, it want it makes you want to continue to read. So, uh, kudos to you on, on, on thank
1: you book. very much. I mean, my, my, my children and my wife said you have to put this on paper and we took a long time to do it. But we got it done though. No, and, and it was a labor of love.
0: That's so awesome. I, all right, so let's start by talking about this. I've heard you say that this is, uh, um, this is something that you've, you've noted before. My childhood disadvantages became advantages later in life. Can you just start with that? It's one of the messages I want to get across to
1: young people who have difficult starts and difficult backgrounds, because in many respects, there is some positives to that experience. The things you develop because you have disadvantages. Let me give this advantage when i was in 15 to 20 different places in the first 18 years of my life i developed adaptability when you go from one schoolyard to the next to the next you learn how to adjust when you go from a, a one orphanage to the next you learn how to adjust you learn to find your place you, you really have you get adaptability and that carries forward into your business career you're able to change jobs you're able to look at things carefully and you actually start to embrace change and you're not fearful of change so that's one thing you get adaptability you get re- Resilience, because you go through these difficult circumstances, once you're able to do that, you gain self-confidence and be able to handle difficult situations. In fact, I recommend to people who have children in very good circumstances to put them into situations like Outward Bound and Knowles, where they have difficult situations that they have to handle alone. You also develop a certain level of self-confidence after overcoming a difficult period. Uh, so these these are disadvantages that become advantages over a lifetime. You can also relate to all kinds of people because you've gone through these circumstances. And finally, <clears throat> one of the negatives is you, you you develop anger because all those period you look around and say why me you know why am I in an orphanage why am I in a foster home why don't why can't I have a bicycle why can't I learn to swim these things that you don't get in a lifetime like in such a lifetime as I had. But on the other hand, if you can take that anger which is energy and direct it toward what's next and then your next achievement instead of directing it externally. A lot of people use their anger anger externally. I drove it inside and basically helped me to achieve the things that I did. So those are some of the disadvantages. Malcolm Gladwell lays it out in his books that that disadvantages become advantages, and I think that's really something that I'm trying to communicate to young people. In fact, a couple of young people, Horatio Alger, I said, "You're, you're luckier than some of my kids because you've had disadvantages and you've overcome them.
0: That's so powerful. Uh, You know, it's you're in your childhood. I mean, you've you've made reference to it now. I mean, um, you you basically you're in an orphanage, and your your world. You're kidnapped by your father at one time, and uh, you know, it's um, you. You have all this stuff that goes on in your world. Um, You know, one of the other things that uh, you've noted is that tough situations, hostile and abusive, taught me how to appreciate good times and handle difficult situations. With less anxiety, which is what I th- I think is uh, is so awesome. Can we let's go there for a minute? What's you know?
1: Well, it's, it's, once you when you were in a very really
0: difficult situation, and my first foster home
1: was pretty awful. I mean, it's, it wasn't quite Dickasonium, but it was close to it. And <clears throat> once you overcome that, <clears throat> you become you develop something which is very important in life: is to be grateful for what you're given. And even, even in my life today, people ask me because of my age, "How are you?" I say, "I'm grateful," and it's very an interesting response. But that is one of the things that you get going through difficult circumstances you really appreciate the good times. And in my life of course things continued to get a little bit better and I continued to be appreciate them. When I went to college it wasn't the greatest start at all but it was better than the orphanage. And you know and so everything seemed to get a little bit better for me. And so basically that's part of another one of the advantages you get going through a, a difficult childhood. Is you basically you learn appreciation and you I would to this day I I I really wonder at how well I've done and I really appreciate it, and I'm grateful I also consider myself lucky and blessed.
0: That's so awesome. The uh, you, you know in the in the middle of your book, um, and your book is called "On the Road Less Traveled." All right, and you know we're gonna we're gonna delve into it a little bit more here. The uh, you know one of the things that uh, and and. Let me read the official title of your book, On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. And um, one of the things that uh, you've mentioned already, but I'd like to go into a little bit more detail, is on page 115 you comment, the only constant in life is change. And that had some learning and some teachings ready for you, all the, the shifting between schools or the places where you lived and so forth and so on. Can you talk about that the only constant in life is change? Well,
1: this is interesting. Of course, my childhood, I was constantly changing. I was constantly changing from one-on-one foster home to the other, then across country, different hotel rooms, then two couple orphanages. So, you know, I was constantly changing and having to adjust to that change. And then when I went to college and graduate school, I started to realize that, you know, one of the successful experiences you have is the ability to see change before it occurs. And so change is the only constant. And leaving E.F. Hutton, for example, to go to Lehman Brothers. You know, E.F. Hutton was a much more comfortable place to be, but they hadn't sensed the change that was coming in the business. The business was changing from retail, you sold to individuals, to institutional, selling to institutions. Lehman Brothers was taking that up. They were going to do that, and I knew I had to go there. And I went to Lehman Brothers, and institutional business did extremely well, and Hutton, when I left them, did relatively poorly because they stayed in the, in the retail business. So I basically understood that, and, and the firm themselves, given the fact that we weren't a large firm, we had to continue to change with the, with the environment to exist. So if you didn't change, you're out of business. So I thought that that was very important to me. And I really do believe that change is the only constant, and with technology doing what it's doing to society, change is, understanding change is absolutely vital because it truly puts you out of business. And of course, going to the university of Rochester and looking at what happened to Kodak, you realize if you don't, even in the wonderful companies, if they don't pay attention to change, they're in trouble. So I, I I'm the fact is that's the last line in my book. It says, what's next. I, I pay, tell people that's what you have to think about all the time. And it, you know, both anything I'm involved in, I always look to what's next. It's a simple expression.
0: I love that. That's, you know, and it, and Instead, a lot of people look at it as, "Oh my gosh, you know, my world's disrupted," or "My, you know, I, I can I make this change? You know, what's it going to do to me? You know, that type of thing." As opposed to, I mean, what a great outlook on it, which is, yeah, you know, what's next? <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things uh, that uh, um, in reading what's going on in your world and so forth, can you talk about the the role that? You know, like external partners or mentors or uh, other people have helped play in uh, in in your life as uh, um, as you've experienced it.
1: Here again, going back to my childhood, you learn as a as a person going through that kind of a circumstance not to trust anybody, and that's a huge mistake. And you know, but slowly but surely, I gained trust in people. There was a professor in my first year in a mechanical drawing, which I was terrible in that became a real mentor to me. He got me through mechanical drawing, but he also became a mentor in extracurricular activities. and We did all kinds of things together. And my my professor, uh, my senior chemical engineering professor, Dr. Su, he basically taught me there was no question of whether you whether you know whether you're going to do it or not. It's how much time you're going to spend doing it. You know, that's one thing I've always put to my employees. We're not going to decide whether or not we're going to do this. We're going to figure out how much time we're going to allocate to do whatever we have to do. But this is the kind of thing that, you know, it's extremely important. Uh, And of course, the the most important partner you get is is, what I call P1 or partner one, finding the right person to share your life with. If You can find someone to share your life with and that you can support and that she or he can support you. It's absolutely, I've been married for 57 years and she's involved in almost every decision. And basically at points in time, she basically turned our life in the right direction and then Tucker, I couldn't get into any of the into clubs at all for some crazy reason. And she said, build a golf course. And sure enough, I went out and I built a golf course. And now it's the, it's, it, we've changed the lives of 500 families over the last 25 years. We're the largest charity on the island. In fact, we may be the largest charity in history of the island. And one of the great experiences I have now is when I walk up to the, the, the you know, the, the, the snack bar of the nine holes and the gal asks me, what's your number? I say, number one, because <laughs> I founded the club. But so she, she's been the big point. But there's three kinds of partners that I find are very important right across the board. One is a partner that can do things you can't do. You need that partner. In today's world, it's vital. In the old days, there, was, there were three lone rangers, but today there aren't. Second thing is to find someone who do things better than you do them. And the third one is an interesting one. You could find partners that basically do things that you do really well, but you don't want to do. You can find those three kinds of partners, either in one person or in a series of people you end up doing things which you do well that you like to do. And that's essentially a term in cells that I was basically you know, I, I had I found a young uh, a fellow that, you know, that we worked together for 35 years. He did all the things I didn't want to do. And he also did a lot of things I couldn't do. And he hired other people to fill in my role. So my role, I got done. I was doing things that I really did pretty well and that I like to do. And, of course, in, in the case of Barbara and I, the same way, we've sort of, you know, divi- division of labor. She does certain kind of things she likes to do. And, you know, we, we build houses. I'm good at spatial relations, you know, and I'm terrible at colors. And you know, I stay out of the colors and I stay out of the fabrics and all that kind of stuff. So th- we built a couple of houses and, you know, it's a good it's a good partnership. But it's absolutely necessary today. Partners are vital in today's world and especially in technology. Some, you know, we, some of the things you're just not capable of doing, you've got to bring people who understand it. Yeah, you know, the answer. The right answer.
0: <laughs> oh, that's that's so awesome. I this is. Uh, I mean, because everything there. I mean, we it, just from and first, I got to say, congratulations on you guys being married for uh, over fifty years. Fifty seven
1: years. That, you know, we, have, we have three children and eight grandchildren, seven grandsons. So it's it's quite a quite an experience. And given that, that I had no relatives, you know. Nobody ever came to any of my graduations, you know, this kind of thing. Now I have a real, I mean, we go on a trip where we've got 16 of us, you know, so that's kind of, that's, that's really cool. Now that some of the, the oldest grandchild has a girlfriend, so we're 17.
0: <laughs> nice, nice. So does that, uh, does that sometimes play into, you know, the dynamics of the family? Is that, I mean, this is not something that uh, that you had, and you now have, uh, you have this really cool.
1: Um... Well, it's, it is cool, but my wife has done a good job of training me. I used to being part, she has a very warm and loving family with a brother and her brother with my, my best friends. You know, she teaches me how to, you know, interact with the various parts of the family. And she does all the, she makes sure that all the kids get their birthdays recognized and so forth. I'm not necessarily good at that because I never did it. So that's an important part of your partner. She picks up your weaknesses and and
0: supports them. I love that. That's uh, so powerful. I, you know, um, one of the things that I'd like you to talk about is, or talk with us about, is the idea that uh, um, you really didn't have control in your life in the, in those early days, in the, as a kid, and so forth. And as you're as you're trying to figure things out, um, can you talk about how this played a role in your desire to seek freedom as one of your goals? To just well, yeah. As,
1: again, the, you're, that's what I keep telling all all of my young friends when I talk to them is is to be be sensitive. To one, your genes—that's unfortunate. Can't do anything about that. But the, what you, the way you grow up, affects those genes. And basically, I—one of my goals was obviously to seek freedom, and and find—and also you find out that that's what you enjoy. And so I was willing not to go back after I left Lehman Brothers to a, another big prestigious firm. I went to a small firm where I had the freedom. I was the boss, and that was important. I could make the rules and and make sure if I followed them as well. But so that I wanted to seek freedom to make my own decisions because as a child, I, you know, I was trucked from place to place. I had no choice about anything that I did. And and it, also even at college, I didn't have a lot of choice. I had, I didn't have enough money, so I had to work. But as soon as I the in graduate school, I didn't work because I had a choice. And so that this was a, one of my, what I call principles over, over a lifetime, you develop a series of principles that you want to follow. And that was one of my key principles. The most important principle still is, The one was taught to me in the Catholic church, which is doing to others. I mean, that, that, that covers so much ground. But the second principle or third principle right down is seek freedom for me. Other people want to seek organization. You know, each person has his own set of principles. That was one of my principles and it came from not having control as a child. You're absolutely right.
0: That's that's so awesome. I appreciate you sharing that because that, uh, you know, I, you know, the, the idea of seeking some sort of stability and then to have the control that can, that means that you're not dependent on others. I mean, you're not, de- I, I don't have to worry about you or your decisions. I'm going to be making I, it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's part, you know, that, that, and but you, you make those decisions, a fork in the road and you can go one direction and you can go another direction. And one that has more, more freedom in it, and not have total freedom as you move in that direction. And I think that's very, very important. It's the type of job you take, you know, is if you want to go in a direction, I, mean, I suspect you are also seek freedom. You're you're kinda of your own boss in your job right now. And that's very important. You know, there's certain people. Other people would rather be in an organization and have different parts, different layers of, of management and so forth. My case, I still, you know, very much desire you can see my, my record from the boardroom. I've been the chairman of more firms than People say you can't keep a job. Just, you just you always be the chairman, but you can't keep a job. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice.
0: That's it's funny. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's one of the things that uh, you know. I like being able to have uh, things that I make decisions about that uh, I have the autonomy to say. You know, we're going that way. Well, okay. So also, it determines how
1: much you know. It depends how how much money, energy, and time you're going to spend on financial uh, acquiring financial resources too. I mean, I'm. My, you know, my, I my one of my kids is, you know, she wants works for a nonprofit, God bless her. That's what she wants, and she's, you know, she knows she's never going to be, you know, she'd be financially secure, but she's not going to make a lot of money because she's decided a friend of mine is a doctor and he does spinal surgeries and you know, in, in Ethiopia, and he knows this is what excites him, and he's not going to ever, but you have to decide. And I, of course, didn't have financial resources, that's something I wanted financial security, and I probably overdid it a little bit, but you know, it's not okay.
0: Then that it did. That it did. I, you know, a lot of what you just talked about is going to lead me into this because, you know, the title of your book is On the Road Less Traveled An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. And, you know, there's a famous poem that's the, you know, the Road Less Traveled. And, I, and some of what you just talked about, I was wondering if Robert
1: Frost, it's in the book.
0: Yes. You know? So I was wondering if yeah. you'd talk about why you, this was your title.
1: Because many of the things I did, you know, were basically on roads less traveled. You know, obviously my whole life is on a road, a little. not many people have traveled that same road, but even, even my road from engineering to business is a road, a little less traveled than most going from, you know, a very big firm like Lehman Brothers, prestigious with a fancy dining room and great, you know, great offices and so forth going to firm and sales. That's a road, a little less traveled, uh, I mean, in today's world, being married 57 years is a road, a little less traveled, too. So I kept getting these, and, and you know, my, my experience with, 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 with female employees, if you look back, I really traveled there, a road best traveled. I was the, you know, just going back, I was one of the first people to add women to the institutional business on Wall Street. I was the, I named the first vice president ever at Lehman Management Company, who was a woman, the, at the Harvard Business School. I was the chairman of the, I was the president of the Alumni Association. I named, I helped name the first woman president of the Alumni Association. In fact, the Asian HM School of Engineering and Applied Sciences has the first woman dean. So that's a road less traveled. Uh, obviously, the, the golf course in Nantucket is a definitely a road less traveled. Nobody thought it would be successful, and it was a, a road less traveled. So it kind of fit in. I also, you know, uh, 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 Scott Peck was one of my favorite people as far as books were concerned. You know he he made state he's made statements like you know uh, love is giving love is is really defined by giving back to other people and he had just wonderful you know conversation it's in my book I I I I, I, I basically you know, copied him on a lot of things that I believe in and you know he did sell twenty million, twenty million copies of his book so I figured I'd piggyback on him a little
0: bit nice nice
1: <laughs> but Robert Frost was one of my favorite poets. And Scott Peck's one of my great writers, and so it, it came to me one day. Also, in the book, it tells you the story. I walked into the Smithsonian, and here was this car that my that was almost exactly like the the car that my father drove across country to pick me up and kidnap me. A 1936 road, you know, Ford Roadster. And so just it just the road less travel sounded very good. And by the way, this is on the road less travel. You know, Scott Peck's book is The Road Less Travel. So we didn't copy it exactly
0: gotcha no that's it, it's so powerful because of the choices that you make and the things that you do I mean you see just like you know, going back to the that golf course again you see the, the just the things. Yeah,
1: I, that, I, you know, just you know you say I nobody does that nobody you know, the idea first of all to find land on Nantucket was you know that <laughs> nobody said there's no land for you you know yeah how you could do it then once I found the land I saw oh, you can't possibly it's been too expensive and, you know we did it and at Furman sells kind of many things we did we started with with, you know, 20 million revenues ended up with almost half a billion, 70 employees ended up at 800. A lot of things we did, people said you can't do because we were such a small firm. But we did them because, and we traveled roads that people didn't travel at the time. And I think you have, that's one of the things that I tell people is that if you want to be relatively successful, you're going to have to travel some pretty bumpy roads. that People say are not possible, you know, because there's where the opportunity is. And sometimes it's a dead end road too. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's not all. Not all success. Trust but, me.
0: That's interesting. One of the things you just said is that uh, you you run into people who say, uh, what are you crazy?" Or "What are you?" You know, that's not going to work. Or um, yeah. how do you, how do you deal with that when you're you're thinking I got to go this way, and someone's telling you uh, you're wasting your time?
1: You know, I, I tell people to you know go to the yellow pad. I really I really believe writing things down. And if you write things down, the reason why you do things. A young man said to me, Ed, you're giving me too many ideas. Tell me one thing. I said, write down where you want to go and how you think you might get there. And as, then when you start to travel that road, if it turns out to be exactly as you thought it would be, that's fine. If it turns out not quite to be, if there's a turn in the road, it's not the end of the road if you have a plan. You know where you wanted to go and you can change it. And I did that constantly but I, in, my bus- in my life and in my business. I constantly pick up, pull out the yellow pad write down exactly what I'm trying to do and why I'm trying to do it and then maybe show it to a few people at the points in time. I've had mentors on Wall Street, a young a fellow who died recently, Wally Stern. I say, Wally, what do you think? You know, but it was written. It was a written piece of, of information. When I went to the firm itself, I wrote a 40-page document on what I was going to do with the firm. And I showed it to the guys in the firm. I said, here's where we're going. And they, you know, they modified it, they changed it a little bit. Some people said it's not a good idea. And, you know, you see in the book, one fellow said, you, you're going you're to you're drown in red ink. Well, he left. And it turns out that we didn't quite drown in red ink. We sold it for three times book and so forth. But that's, that's another whole story. But writing things down is very, very important. It, it's a way of communicating with yourself, which is one of my real drivers right now. The second book is a whole book that really is a conversation with yourself. The only constant besides change, I think, is your inner voice. You know, you you, you carry that from, the, from childhood to death, and that conversation drives a lot of your decisions. And, uh, and then writing it down so you can communicate with yourself is very important. I don't know, I can keep going on in this because one of the things that happened is my father died suddenly in 1971, and we were semi-estranged. We communicated, a lot of writing going back and forth. But since he died suddenly, there was no closure. So first time in my life, I went and got help. And the woman was brilliant the Ackerman Institute in New York. And she said, what I'm going to do basically is you're going to write your father letters and ask him questions. And then you're going to sit down and write those letters back pretending that you're your father. I did that for six months and it really kind of cleared things up pretty good because I, I put myself in his shoes. And I learned a lot more about him by having to do that. And that was an interesting, again, here's a communications device that I think is very important.
0: That is awesome. I love that. That's uh, yeah, especially for because you know for feeling like you you have something there that you'd like to at least ask. And then you can also answer yourself. And uh, okay, who's going
1: who's gonna to answer the question? The only person can answer the question is you. You need to go back and put yourself in his position and try to answer those questions. And then one thing I didn't ask him was what about my mother because I assumed she died and I never asked him that question, which is kind of unusual. And, Of course, you know, in the book, I I found her after fifty seven years. So. I don't want to give too much away in the book, but I want people still to buy the book and read it because it's important to me that they, there's a lot of little things in the book, which are good. One of the things that I, I try to get across to people, if you really look at my life, one of the great things I did was I was never a victim. No matter what it was my fault, there are points in time, it was my fault. I always moved through the energy instead of being a victim, between the energy to be a victim, be an energy just to find out what's next. And that's really very important because that energy, you can use it up very quickly, aiding people and situations and so forth. We take that energy and say, oh, what am I going to do next? What am I going? I made I made a mistake. Or they treated me badly. In my case, the Lehman Brothers was terrible. I did everything right and they still threw me out. But I figured what I was going to do next it turned out to be my dream job. So it worked out well.
0: It's so inspiring. And also just the information, the thought that, you know, sometimes... It it kind of goes back to what we talked about before when the idea that, uh, you know, the challenges that you face, you you kind of the anxiety that you that some people create around like being thrown out as the as as the CEO at another company or something like this. I mean, instead, you saw it as an opportunity and. uh,
1: Well, you know, life is is has a flow to it and. You know, I can't say that everything you do, you know, it, 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 it turns out that it should, but you know, if you, but you, when you come into a situation where you have to change, if you use, use that energy to t- just find out what's next, because it's hard to figure out what's next, you know, it's not easy, but you, ha- you have a certain amount of energy every day. You've got to use it the right way. And, you know, hating a situation or blaming other people is, is, a, is a worthless use of energy. Really, it really is. And you, if you use up energy, it's gone. You, you can't do it. So in a sense, and in many respects, it's your fault. You've made some mistakes. you made a wrong choice. You worked for the wrong boss, or you wrong picked the wrong industry, and you just got to go on. You know, My daughter, picked. she got a wonderful dream job at Fortune, and she did very well there, but Fortune wasn't doing well. Print was going down, so she had to leave, and she found something that she actually liked a lot better, so it worked out well. In many respects, it's, it's never easy, but it's important But they say so you just ne- try never to be a victim. You can be a victim for a while, a couple of days, but then get on with it because doesn't
0: do any good. Gotcha. And, you know, so this is going to just really fit really well with something I want to ask you. You know, if you had to, let, let's put you in a situation where you're getting ready to talk to an audience of high school students about um, achieving their dreams. All right. So the idea would be um, that you're, you're, there's a the speaker, they're all coming in here, and they're going to listen to Ed talk to them about what to avoid as they seek to achieve their dreams. What would you tell them?
1: You know, I'm not big on avoiding. I'm big, I and mean, this is one of the things I, I, I do do graduate. I'm doing a graduation speech at the Keys College down here, and I've done number of, I've done many graduation speeches at Rochester, and I, I did Brunswick School last year, commencement address, and I pitch the same thing. Basically, it's what I call the four P's. Find your passions, find your principles, find your partners, and then find your plans. And that's what my second book is all about. I really believe that this conversation of those four things, that if you work on those four things, you'll get most of it right. And that's what I tell young people. Avoid being a victim for sure, all right? Avoid, uh, also recognize fully your context. In other words, the difference between my life and my father's life. He was born in 1900 I was born in 1936. You know the last 40 years have been a unique period of history. You can do really well, not easily, but it was it was an easier period. Think of the period from from 1900 to 19 to the second end of the second world War, Spanish flu, depression, you know war and all you know you're 45 or 50 years old before you even can exhale basically. And in our case, since 1983 till today, Things that, you know, 9-11 was terrible. There's no toys about that. But just things like the stock market went from 600 in the Dow Jones to 33,000. I mean, the wind was at your back. So, and I mean, when, in my situation at Furman Sells, we, our, our sales went up 20 times. But while they were going up 20 times, the stock market was going up 10 times. So we did a good job. We had the wind at our back. And that's what I tell young people. I say, try to find a place where you can find a trend or a theme or a wave with the wind is at your back. And, and not necessarily one that's totally financial. My friend who's the surgeon, you know, he could have gone any place because he was a specialist and curved to his spine. He went where there was huge demand and no supply. He went to Ethiopia. And he was, I guess, one of maybe two people that could do what he could do. And if you look at his brochure after 20 years, he has changed and saved so many lives because he was in a place where there was great demand for his services. So I tell young people that go through your passions and passions that overused word, talents, interests, and so forth. And, but passions are very important. What do you really want to do? You know, and then principles, you know, and so I, I'm pitching this in the book. The book spends uh, all the time. Principles, what, what, what lines won't you cross? What rules do you want to follow? And, you know, being brought up in a Catholic school was pretty easy. They told you that if you, Went this way, you go to the good place. You went the other place, you go to that other place. And so it, they, they, they established it very early. And, they, you know, they, they the golden rule was taught by the golden ruler. And, you know, you you learned it pretty easily. But the principle, and principles go on through entire lives. I mean, I can spend a lot of time on this because I think it's vitally important. Uh, for example, I've, my passion turned out to be to help people do better than they thought they could. The principle with that was – a principle I added to that is that you can accomplish almost anything. if You don't care who gets the credit. Then take the principle a little bit further. Start to deflect credit. Have some fun, Steve. Next time somebody says, Steve, you did a great job, think of somebody who helped you do that job. And to the person who has to say, you know, Mary Sue, Mary Jane, she was the really one who helped me to do this. Three things happened magically. First of all, the person who asked the question said, boy, this guy is paying attention. Second of all, you feel good. And then when Mary Jane finds out, she's going to feel good. So that's what that's that's the one thing that I see. These are what I call principles. And they're simple principles because if you think about deflecting credit, it becomes a principle. So when everybody says something to you, you say, like I got interviewed by a fabulous lady, and they, they were all raving about my interview. And I said, no, no, no. Without Barbara, it wouldn't have worked because she really had the questions. And Steve, by the way, you, same, your questions are delving. You're making me... Better
0: than I should be. Well, thank you. You're too kind, but this is this is awesome. I I love your answers. This is this is uh, just so cool being able to talk with you about this. I, you know, um, I got to say this. uh, You know, toward the end of your book on the road less traveled, you note this: I haven't found the holy grail, and I haven't achieved every one of my goals, but I've experienced something almost amazing. I've lived the American dream. Many think of it as a cliched, outmoded concept. Believe me, it isn't. It's alive and well. Could you talk about that?
1: I, I just think that America is still, the opportunity today is greater than it's ever been. Remember, you know, in my era, or my father's era, there was a lot of prejudice. Prejudice has been cut way, way back. All right? Scholarships, There were, you know, I, I, there were one or two scholarships I could have gotten out of high school. Today, they're just loaded with scholarships. So that, in addition in a business. And when I went into business, you needed capital, you know, you had to build steel plants or oil refineries today with a stroke, you know, if you want to start a business and go on the internet, you can get it done in a hurry. So enormous opportunities and technology basically is putting a lot of old industries out of business. that so gives you more opportunity. Plus education has gone to the next step. You know, i be criticized education, but education is better now than it's ever been. And by the way, when I got out of school, I wanted to be an international businessman, but I was too early. Today, you have the whole world open to you. So I think it's an enormous opportunity. And America gives you that chance. Other countries, not so much. We still can, you know, you find entrepreneurs today that are being successful or, or, or people that, you know, start from almost nothing. So it's still available. The American dream is still alive and well. You know, it's not as simple as it was before. You know, and we may not have quite the 40-year period, which I had. To be, you know, to be lucky enough to be live in that particular period. But I still think that today, young people have huge opportunities, and you know, to live and enjoy and and to produce. And I think that's why I say my four P's. You know, fall into the the four categories of life. And I don't want to get too deep into this, but I believe that self, family, work, and community are the four things you have to pour those four P's into. And community is my word for giving back. And so if you take these four Ps and end up satisfying those four parts of life, then I think you're going to feel pretty good when it's all over. But when you're 86 years old and you're on to your last, you know, two holes in the golf course and you're basically doing what you really somehow found you should do, which is to write a book and tell people about it. So you can help them with the tools. So you ask a question, which is the most important. What would I tell young people? I want to give them those tools that will allow them to at least have a chance of being successful. And also I want to maybe level out a few of the early bumps if I can, that people make, you know, standard mistakes, but this is my goal now. And this is my, you know, what's next for me is to get these books out and hopefully they'll be, I'm getting responses, which really paid the price. A Woman wrote me the other day and said, you know, her daughter was confused didn't know what to do. Now she's in college. You know, I got another lady, a freshman at, at Notre Dame that wrote me, said, I read your book and this is why I'm here. So I'm getting those kind of returns. So it's worthwhile. Then you should have stopped me. The question was too. The answer
0: was too long for the question. No, oh, no, that's I could. No, oh, no, no. Thank, thank you for talking like that. I because it's this is so powerful. I mean, you know, one of the things that we have so often is the voice that says, no, "You can't do that." No, you can't do this. Or it, it, and I'm talking internal voices. I'm not talking about outside. I'm talking about people saying. No, no, no it's internal voices.
1: You, that's why I say that my next book is basically a conversation with yourself. Ask that. yourself what your passions are and then figure out whether they fit with today's world what, or how do they fit with your talents, how do they fit with, and also, you know, how do they fit with your partner or partners? It's very important that you, your partner and you have somewhat the same passions and the same, not necessarily the same passion, but the same principles, or you find out that, you know, you can't, if you have a good partner and you have the same passions and principles, you go a long way toward getting things done. You know, and also support. It's a very important to have support. The, not only your own inner voice, but somebody who's with you all the time, who's willing to pay attention to your strengths and your weaknesses. So those are the kinds of things. And, and, but today, you have to have that met that voice inside you that says, "Can it can be done. Again, as a child going through difficult circumstances, and many times you had to say, I'm going to get through this. And so there is some luck in having a difficult circumstance. You know? And you're right, there, people who basically spend the whole time, 12 years in one school and one, one neighborhood, it's great. But when they come up against difficult situations, they have more anxiety than I have. I mean, (laughs) when I, when I got the difficult situations, I said, Hey, I've seen this before and I've gotten through it before.
0: Love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. What, what awesome uh, advice, what awesome thoughts that you're sharing with your readers. And uh, I can't wait for your, uh, your next book to come out. And you know, but I got uh, a couple of cool last questions that I want to ask you. And, uh, um, but before we do that, if someone wanted to connect with you and, or learn more, where would you send them, Ed? Well, the, first of all, the books. And, you know, there is a
1: website. Uh, the word hagem is a very unusual name there. There's nobody, the customers made it up when my father came over. But so Ed edhajim, www.edhajim.com gives you my, my uh, website. And my publicist has done a great job. It's a very robust Website tells a lot about me, and so forth, and all the things that has has some of these principles laid out a little better than even I explain them. You know, since, again, writing things down, you can be more, much more, you bring more clarity to your ideas than when you talk about them. And uh, that that read the book. and The second book is going to come out April fourth, and I think that really tells the whole story. And you can email me. You know, I, I, I'm at edhagem, you know, uh, at gmail.com So there's that's easy enough, and I'm. I've, I've, I've answered a lot of emails. In fact, is on the book. I could write a book on people telling me about themselves after they've read my book, because they relate to different parts of it. So that's really wonderful. I mean, I I think I'm collecting all these emails from people. I, I may someday write a book about their their responses, because well, one fellow said he said I've been an, I'm an orphan. He said I've only told three people in my life. You're the third. So you know it's kind of things like that that are kind of really humorous. So I'm getting a lot of good 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 feedback from the book, which is worthwhile. I went on this venture not knowing how it would turn out because publishing, as your main man, that was a terrible business. I mean, my, public, my publisher is a wonderful person. He's done a great second book. He's done the quality of the book is even better, but he does take, you know, a very large percentage of anything that you know we generate. <laughs> this is not a profitable venture, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad you're taking a chance to share because, yes, I understand that it would not be Well, but- you
1: know, sharing this, this community thing that I say a fourth part of life, if you don't do things you don't give back it's the greatest satisfaction ever i mean there's a young lady up at the university of rochester who was a, who was an optics engineering major and she just got a phd and she got married and so forth and she stood up on a stage and said wasn't for you mr hedger i wouldn't be here i mean come on that's that's pays all the bills that you ever ever spend i mean or any any effort you ever that single thing you know in my mind took care of anything i've ever done at the university of rochester
0: that's so awesome i love it uh you know, Ed, we're, we're getting ready to wrap up. And by the way, I'll have your website in my uh, show notes, and, uh, which will be awesome. And uh, the, uh, so that people can just right there from their mobile phone, if they're listening to me on, on that, they can just go and click on it and, and go there and take a look at uh, what you have to say on the website. So um, good stuff. And uh, I'll also put your email address there in the show notes too. So, um, you know, last two questions that are just general questions I like to ask my guests. And the first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit?
1: then uh, that's you know, I, there is one that's probably a gene. I, I, I have a, a, a lot, unusual amount of energy, but I feed off the things that I do. And you know, I was lucky enough to have this sort of thought process or or passion that when people do better than they think they can, it gives me energy. When I watch someone who's, you know doing something that I've helped he or she do, that really gives me energy to go forward. I also feel that, you know this is what I'm putting on the earth for is that is to basically, You know, to do things that will make the world a better place. You know, at Rochester, we had something called uh, Meliora, ever better. You know, leave the place ever better. You know, any place you go, try to leave it a little bit better. And when you do that, you get energy from it. I mean, I think that's – in Nantucket, you know, the the symbol on my my shirt when we first got there was not, well, what what are we doing putting a golf course on Nantucket? Now people come up to me and say, "You know, you, my daughter is now at college because of your your club." We gave last year. We gave ten vocational scholarships, which is a whole other crusade that I have right now. As I feel that we really should be sponsors for vocational education. We have a young fellow want to be a chef. Cost forty thousand dollars a year to go to Johnson Wells, you know, and he worked in our kitchen all summer long. He loves it. So I'm, I want kids to find their passion enough to go to college. As such, they can become nurses or Marine engineers or hospitality workers and be happy live happily. My, my electrician and my plumber, you know, every day they do wonderful things for people, save people's lives, you know. And so, or the guy who fixes my computer, I mean, with, without him, I don't know. You know, I always compare my doctor annoyed, gets annoyed when I say this, but when, you know, if I don't feel well in the morning, my computer's down, more important thing is my computer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so, you know, Ryan comes over and fixes my computer and I, even though I'm not feeling well, I'm now in good shape. I can live through the day. That's
0: awesome. I love it. Uh, all right. Last question, Ed. Uh, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say, thank you? Oh,
1: I think that these two professors at the university, Oscar minor, who basically caught me early in my, my career. My first year at the university was terrible. I got rejected by all the fraternities. And, you know, I, and i was i was a star student in, in high school and i got there and i found out that they, they made it more difficult you know, i got into my math class where i never got less than you know an a all of a sudden i found i wasn't doing that well my first english paper was a c you know professor said you know write very well and then kind of go drawing i couldn't do it he just grabbed me and said you'll be okay and i'll take care of you i'll be your, your person and he basically followed me all the way through i ended up being the chairman of the finance board which gave out all the money of the school's activities and he was the the faculty advisor, and he just helped me all the way through. He was a great, great human being. Then in my senior year, I worked for Dr. Sue, who basically uh, worked with me, and he he gave me just the ability to understand and how to handle problems. The concept of observe, design the program to figure out the problem, execute that, and then analyze, and then reprocess, what I call the engineering process. Dr. Sue was fantastic. Uh, but there have been mentors. I mean, it takes a village. I mean, I, all my life, I've had people that have helped me. You know, Wally Stern, who was about 10 years older than I on Wall Street, and I would go to him constantly to, you know, to teach me the business. So, but those, those two those two teachers at university. Uh, there was also a professor at Harvard who gave me the last piece of my management puzzle, Hugo Eiderhoven, who was a champion in developing strategy and basically he convinced me that this was the most important thing you could do. And I ended up with my own process when I took on a management problem. I dealt with culture, strategy, and people long before I worried about the numbers. And that really made me a very different manager. Culture and strategy were so important to me. And Hugo, who's passed away recently, was a, he really was a professional. He, just, he, he took a situation and he said, this strategy will work and the strategy won't work. Why? And I, I, that, I carried that through my entire business life.
0: That is so awesome. Thank you so much. Ed, thanks for sharing your book, On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. I mean, what a powerful and inspiring story. Thanks so much for talking with me and wishing the best in all you do. Steve, thank you for your
1: questions and for your time and for your energy. It's been a really good experience. Thank you very much.
0: Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio. Your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmuleto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.